Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome once again to Signals to Danger, the podcast which explores the history of our nation's railways and its darkest days. And indeed, welcome to this one, our 50th ever episode. Exciting times, which means that there is at least 50 hours worth of my voice out there, and I'm very, very grateful that you all keep coming back to listen. My name is Dan Fox. I'm the producer of the Signals to Danger podcast, and I'm also a full-time employee with a UK train operating company. I just wanted to very quickly take that moment I do to thank those of you who support the podcast on Patreon, or with donations, purchasing merchandise, things like that, and also to remind you that the Patreon platform now provides subscribers a way to listen to these episodes ad-free. With the usual out of the way, I want to welcome you to this episode, and this will be one of those rare times I go along with the podcast trend, of issuing a trigger warning at the start of the episode. I don't generally, because, well, the subject matter of this podcast, it is what it is. But while most accidents affect a number of people, and it's quite easy to think about the machines, the infrastructure, what took place, this time we're looking at an incident which affected one person very directly. And while the repercussions impacted those around her very much, this episode is going to be a little bit different to most. This episode is going to deal with the circumstances surrounding the death of a 16-year-old girl, and I just wanted to give you a heads up of that going into it, as we discuss the circumstances surrounding the incident which took place at James Street Station. Right, it's a sad tale, but an important one to tell. So, let's begin. Survived that were killed when a third train hit the wreckage. This war 
Jones in the words of the coroner, a unique set of circumstances that have resulted in catastrophic consequences. Back in 1964, Jerry and the Pacemakers hit the airwaves with a song about transport. Not necessarily the most musical of subjects, unless you consider J. Foreman's musical rendition of the names of every single tube station musical. This song in particular, though, wasn't about rail, but it did cover the place that we're starting our story today. Jerry Marsden's modal choice was in fact a boat, specifically the ferry across the Mersey. The song itself was fairly well received, featuring on the soundtrack of the film of the same name, which was unsurprising as it was a musical flick featuring the band, think Hard Day's Night and the Beatles, but it did reach number 8 in the UK singles chart and number 6 in the US. But at the risk of being too tangential too early in this episode, I'll circle round to why I'm bumbling around the subject of Jerry and the Pacemakers. The namesake of this song is in fact an actual ferry service, unsurprisingly known as the Mersey Ferry, and it takes people from the city of Liverpool on the east bank to Birkenhead and Wallasey on the the west. The ferry has existed in one form or another since around the year 1150, when Benedictine monks began rowing passengers across for a small fee, of course. The mid-1500s saw the service transition into private enterprise and over the intervening centuries developed with steamships entering the fray and larger boats picking up the slack and indeed the people. The key to the popularity of the ferry really came down to the exclusivity of the service it offered. The Mersey at Liverpool is a substantially wide body of water with only other options really being miles and miles upstream, where the river narrowed and bridges became a realistic concept. And let's bear in mind we are predating the car quite substantially here for the early part of its history, so that's an addition of many hours if not days ride to get from one bank to the other. But all of this changed in 1886 with the opening of the Mersey Railway. The railway was one of the first parts of the interurban railways connecting the wider Merseyside area, but crucially, it included one key component, the Mersey Railway Tunnel. That's right, five minutes into the episode, well, yeah, about five minutes into the episode, I'm finally talking about the railways. The ferry across the Mersey was no longer the only way to get from bank to bank. The Mersey Rail Tunnel was a key piece of infrastructure when it was created, and although the steam age did bring some issues, these trains ran at a five-minute headway through the tunnel, so it was a fairly inhospitable atmosphere, and people who'd initially flocked to the railway made their way back to the ferries following a peak of traffic in 1890. The railway was in fact soon in financial difficulty, and following some back-and-forth far too dull for this podcast, the newfangled technology of electrification was decided upon as a solution, and eventually the fairly well-known George Westinghouse ended up signing a contract to fund and deliver this change. So without this turning into a full history lesson, I'll briefly tell you that in 1948 the Mersey Railway became part of the Mersey section of the London Midland and Scottish Railway, and in turn British Railways. The route under the Mersey became part of the Wirral Line, one of the two routes operated by Mersey Electrics, the uh, part of BR, the other being the Northern Line running, well, north, out of Liverpool, along the coast and into the suburbs. 
As a result of privatisation of British Rail, the Northern Line and the Wirral Line were brought together as the Mersey Rail Electrics Passenger Franchise in 1997. The third rail electric Northern and Wirral Lines are largely isolated from the rest of the National Rail Network. No through passenger services to or from outside of the network. A decision was made to transfer it into exclusive Mersey travel control, being removed from the national franchising system and the Secretary of State exempted the two lines from being designated as a franchise under the 1993 Act, all of which leads to Mersey Rail's unusual position outside of the DFT operators, something which has been a bit useful, I suppose, in some of the recent disputes. In any case, that is a slightly tangential and maybe not quite as brief as I wanted it to be introduction to Mersey Rail and the Mersey Tunnel. But now we need to ask why it is that I am talking about it. The Mersey Tunnel runs from the rural side of the river into the city. And at that point, trains run into a loop which takes them to Moore Street, Lime Street and Central Station before running back out to the river and across to the Wirral. There is one station before and after that loop. Essentially, it forms the eastern end of the tunnel, James Street. And it's here that our story will focus today. Georgia Varley. If it's a name you haven't already heard before, it's a name I'm sure we'll all remember after this episode. On the 22nd of October 2011, Georgia was a 16-year-old girl who found herself at James Street Station at half past 11 in the evening, where unfortunately a tragedy took place which saw her lose her life. But how is it that we got here? What brought her to the station and what went so wrong that means she never got to leave. Like many young people her age, Georgia was lively, bubbly, described by her parents as being wonderful, and with her age came, well, the inevitable social life which so many enjoy at that age. Her parents had separated and both had new partners, and on the night in question, her dad had gone to visit his mother in North Wales, so it was agreed that Georgia would spend the night at a friend's. On the 22nd of October, it was this social life which brought her to the railway. And I want to make a point here before we get started. In this section and indeed this episode, I'm going to discuss the events which took place on the evening, of course, including the condition in which Georgia entered the railway. I really don't in any way intend to demonise Georgia or in fact anyone who we're going to discuss in this episode. This is a complex and tragic incident, and I'm only going into detail to tell the story properly. This Saturday evening saw Georgia attend a house party with her friends, and as so often the case, despite the age, alcohol was certainly partaken in, and it would be fair to say that Georgia became somewhat under the influence along with her friends. In fact, in evidence later given to Liverpool Crown Court, one of her friends stated that Georgia was already drunk, with a bottle of vodka under her arm when she arrived at her friend Madeline Bower's 18th birthday party. 
Bowers told the court that she had taken two bottles off her and hid one behind the couch, but she always got more, and that she'd offered to call her a taxi to take her home and to pay for it, but Georgia refused the offer and insisted she was all right to carry on. While still at the house and following drinking and, well, it appears that there was at some point some consumption of the party drug methadrone, Georgia fell down the stairs at the house and this fall almost prompted her friends to call an ambulance and following this it was requested that Georgia's friends get together and take her home. Young people drinking too much in the enjoyment of life It's not something which is rare. In fact, I would wager that a pretty large proportion of those listening have been in very similar situations. I know that in my earlier years, I have um, certainly overindulged, overjoyed and been a little worse for wear as a a result. It's relatively normal behaviour, even if it isn't necessarily always the best idea. The next thing which Georgia and her friends did, however was not to go home. They made a critical decision to head into the city centre to continue their night out. The group headed for Manor Road Station on the West Kirby branch of the Rural Line to board a Merseyrail train heading into the city centre, well, where the fun would continue. As Georgia was struggling in her four-inch heels, her friends suggested she remove them on the way to the station. At around 5 past 11, the group boarded to Whiskey 5-8, the last train of the evening, which would take them the short journey into the city, nine stops in about 25 minutes. The train was driven by Belinda Nicholson, and at the rear of the three-carriage train was her guard, Christopher McGee. Georgia and her friends boarded the middle carriage, along with a large group of boisterous, loud and happy people. It was party time on an evening, wasn't it? At the next station, Georgia alighted unexpectedly, saying she'd lost her handbag and was shepherded back on board the train by her friends. But this didn't happen instantly. Georgia left the train and the guard McGee went to close the doors. Along the train they closed, with the exception of one set, which was held open by Georgia's friends to give her time to reboard. McGee walked down the train to see why the doors hadn't actually closed and recalled seeing her on the platform, noting that she was under the influence. Georgia reboarded, McGee returned to the rear door and continued dispatching the train. And as far as the operation of the train goes, the next section of the journey went on without incident. After the train left Hamilton Square Station in Birkenhead, it entered the Mersey Tunnel, with the city centre on the other side, and its next stop, James Street. As two Whiskey 5-8 drew into James Street, it pulled up, stopping at 23.28. McGee released the doors, allowing passengers to exit the train and move into city centre pubs and clubs or, well, wherever else their legs told them to take them. A number of those who had been at the party alighted here, although it wasn't the stop Georgia and others were planning to use. They had intended to get off at Lime Street and walk to the Garlands nightclub. 
McGee, seeing passengers had alighted, started the process for getting the train ready to leave and to head into the loop round the city centre stations. He reached for the door close button and the door's closed sequence began. The hustle alarm started. That beep, beep, beep that we're all so used to and it played for four seconds. At the end of those four seconds, two things happen. Firstly, the doors start to close. And secondly, Georgia alighted the train. She walked immediately to the tunnel wall opposite, and the train doors slammed shut. Others on the platform look back, likely due to the fact that Georgia and her friends had started calling to each other, as one had gotten off and the others not. And a few seconds later, McGee released the doors of the train again, but only for a few seconds as nobody attempted to board or alight, and the young lady remained near to the platform wall. McGee selected doors closed on his control panel, and the hustle alarm once more sounded across the underground platform. At this point, Georgia started back towards the train, but didn't try to board it. Instead, she moved over to a window next to the doors and leant against it, She was trying to talk to her friends through the window and one of them called Love, just move away from the train. After this came a sequence of events that would be scrutinised by the REIB, the BTP and ultimately the Crown Court. McGee reached for his door control panel and used the bell buzzer to send a code to Nicholson at the front end. Two on the buzzer. This was the ready-to-start message. Nicholson, in the lead cab of the train, heard the message and sent it back as an acknowledgement. The way things were set up on Merseyrail means that Nicholson was responsible for moving the train, checking the route ahead, making sure this was done safely and correctly, but in terms of the platform processes, well, she was operating blind, relying on McGee's bell cords as instructions. She took power, and the train began to move. But by the time it had reached 10 miles an hour, a third bell had sounded from the rear cab. Stop. So she did. Unbeknown to her, as the train had started moving, Georgia had leant back from it, slightly twisting in the direction of travel, but by the time it had reached about 5 miles an hour, she fell back in contact with it, turning slightly and falling to her right, down into the gap, between the train and the platform. When she fell, McGee sent the stop bell cord, a single buzz on the buzzer. The tragic outcome of this night was that Georgia Valley received injuries as a result of this fall between the train and the platform, which meant that she lost her life. I won't go into the details, there's no need. The end result is the end result. In the span of nothing more than a few seconds, a normal night out for a normal teenage girl and a perfectly normal shift for two rail workers had turned into something, well, it was nothing short of a nightmare.
As we've covered previously, the responsibility for investigating accidents on the UK Rail Network lands with the Rail Accident Investigation Branch. They are the ones who investigate any potential safety issues with the industry with the intention of limiting potential future recurrence of accidents, looking at things as whether operating procedures were at fault. They are not, however, the only body which will investigate deaths on the railway. The police carry out an investigation into any potential criminal acts and also act for the coroner, and the ORR can carry out investigations into any health and safety breaches. On that basis, in this week's episode, we'll also be looking into Operation Scotia, which was the BTP's investigation into the death of George Avali. So while I will be using my usual sources of the RAIB report and contemporary news sources, I'll also be working quite heavily this episode from an article written by Detective Superintendent Simon Taylor for the 10th volume of the Journal of Homicide and Major Incident Investigation, but we will get into that a little bit later on. British Transport Police, BTP, received initial reports about the incident shortly after it took place from both Merseyrail itself and also from numerous 999 calls made by those who were unfortunate enough to have witnessed the incident. Based on the information that had been handed to them, the command and control log was opened, with the message, person fell between platform and the train, may be a fatality, and the incident was initially categorised as a fatal accident. Fire and rescue officers arrived on the scene with BTP and paramedics, although from the earliest arrivals it was, it was clear that there was no rescue which could be undertaken, and investigations began. Over the next few weeks and months, both the RAIB and the BTP would conduct independent investigations and come to their conclusions about the circumstances which had taken place. But in the spirit of this podcast, we will start with the RAIB. One factor that would be crucial in this investigation would be understanding whether the decision to dispatch the train took place before or after Georgia leant against the side. Due to the fact this incident took place on one of the stations of the Merseyrail network, a key piece of evidence was present, which might not have always been available on open line, CCTV. The stations on the Merseyrail network are equipped with cameras, which at James Street itself were placed in the way that they fully captured the incident and became a tool that was invaluable to investigators on both sides of the table. The footage wasn't without its issues, however, with the quality not being anything like the levels we've come to enjoy today. Full HD was probably still a bit of a pipe dream in those systems, and it likely wasn't a brand new installation at the time. The image was somewhat washed out by lights on the train and grainy in places, but it was good enough to establish a basic timeline of events, especially when matched with the data stored on the train's ODTR or on-train data recorder which is the trend black box, which we've covered previously. Using this footage, the RAIB defined the events at James Street as follows. At 23.28, it arrives into the station, the doors were released. The body side indicators were lit, showing that the doors were released and open and accessible. These were orange lights mounted in the centre of each vehicle of the Class 508 multiple unit. And the presence of these lights was key in establishing what went wrong here. 25 seconds passed, 
McGee pressed the button, which started the door's closing sequence and the audible warning that hustle alarm sounded, and in four seconds the door started to close. Varley alighted a second later as they were closing, and by 23, 28 and 34, the doors were shut and Georgia was stood against the opposite wall. Just over a second later, the doors started to open again, which took about two seconds, although it's clear that McGee doesn't leave them open for very long, as the hustle alarm sounds once more at 23, 28 and 38 seconds. While the alarm would be sounding is when Georgia moves back across towards the train, and while the doors are closing, at the 44 seconds mark, she leans against it. Three seconds later, the doors are closed and interlocked. They're secure. And while Georgia is leaning onto the train, this is the first time that that train would be able to take power. The interlocking system prevents it while the doors are released. And we know, because of the design of the systems on board, that those bodyside indicator lights, which we sometimes refer to as bills, the traction interlock, the one that stops power being taken, doesn't kick in until the doors are closed and locked and the bills are extinguished. The CCTV clearly showed that the lights were lit when she came into contact, telling us that the decision to dispatch was made while this was the case. McGee must have sent the train ready to start signal while Georgia was in contract with the train. This signal, two on the buzzer, was sent at some point between interlock being achieved and three seconds later, when it is estimated that Nicholson sends back at 23, 28 and 51, taking power a second later. Four seconds later, Georgia looks back along the train towards McGee, and on the footage he can be seen to motion with his arm, leaning out of the train, gesturing her to move away. At the same time, the train begins to move. A second later, she moves with the train, leans away, and only one more second passes before she leans back against it. It's now moving at five miles an hour. She falls to the right, and McGee can be seen to vanish from the footage into the cab, sending the stop signal. Four seconds later, Georgia 2 vanishes from the footage, and the train comes to a stop over the next eight seconds. By 10 seconds after 23.29, it had a stand, and McGee was confronted with the aftermath of the incident. The REIB had now established that the ready-to-start signal had been sent while Georgia was in an unsafe position. Next, they needed to establish why. The immediate cause of the accident was, as it is in so many circumstances, quite basic, and it certainly required examination of the causal factors in its support. In this case, it was the young person, Georgia isn't named in the report, fell through the platform edge gap and onto the track as the train began to move out of the station. The causal factors identified by the branch started with the most crucial. Confronted with the knowledge of timings, the REIB said, The guard sent the driver the ready-to-start code and no subsequent stop code 
while the young person was leaning against the train. Knowing that this was the case, they identified three possible reasons to answer what was now the biggest question. Why? Firstly, that he had seen her, but he expected her to move away. Secondly, that he had not seen her because his attention was elsewhere. For example, on the large group of passengers moving down the platform or the train's door control panel. Or finally, that he had looked briefly in her direction, but did not see her there. And these possibilities were approached using the information from the video footage. It shows McGee at his open door and the young person, Georgia, leaning against the train approximately 11 seconds before he waved to warn her to stand back. This meant that he had sufficient time to carry out a safety check as required by the dispatch procedure. If McGee had carried out the safety check at this time, as he was supposed to do as part of his job, he would have seen Georgia. As seen on the footage, there was nothing between them to restrict his view. Which kind of eliminates the second possibility, that he hadn't seen her. A large group of passengers took up the width of the platform and restricted his view of her while she was at the wall, and then as she approached the train. But the RAIB considered the possibility that as they passed, his attention may have continued to focus on this large group as they walked towards him and through the exit, which was opposite his door. And it's also possible that his attention went from the platform to the control panel as he pushed the button to close the doors, watched for the interlock light, and then pushed the signal twice to send his ready-to-start code. The report also tells us about that third possibility, that the guard had looked briefly in the young person's direction but did not see her, and it can't be completely discounted because looked but failed to see is a known phenomenon in routine repetitive tasks. It's one of the reasons why the railway encourages things like risk-triggered commentary because you are going through a mundane repetitive task, but you are highlighting the risks that you need to be aware of. The branch in their report cited a 2006 report into car accidents, which said that 21% of junction accidents involved people going through the motions of looking, but not actually seeing the other car, the cyclist, the pedestrian. Looked but failed to see was recorded most private, most frequently at private drives or entrances, and almost as frequently at mini roundabouts. And why is this important? Dispatching a train is a routine, repetitive task that the guard would have carried out several hundred thousand times in his career before the dispatch that caused this incident. After the guard boards his train and stands at his open door, the platform video camera footage doesn't show him in enough detail to determine the direction he's looking at, or his line of sight at key times. The RIB therefore couldn't determine where McGee was looking at these key times from his account of events, and actually they couldn't particularly trust his accounts because his recollections were not reliable or conclusive. One example of this is that he recalled that Georgia came back to the train and was possibly knocking on the window when he closed the doors. However, Video footage and information from the train's data recorder contradict this because on both occasions the young person was at the platform wall and away from the train when he pressed the button to close the doors. The branch did consider the options of a clinical psychologist on these discrepancies, the, the opinions of one, um, that these discrepancies may be caused by the trauma of the incident. 
In any case, the RIB report doesn't particularly tell us of a firm conclusion with regards to the reason McGee dispatched the train. In the concluding section of the report, they state, he did this possibly because he had expected her to move away or possibly because he hadn't seen her. It's not really a definitive answer. And it's something which I haven't seen often in these types of reports. In any case, by the time the guard warned the young person to stand back, she'd been leaning against the train for approximately 11 seconds. The branch concludes that it's not known whether the guard saw her during this time, or if he saw her, whether he delayed taking action in the expectation that she would move away. As we know, platform video camera footage shows him warning her to stand back in the moments before the train departs. And it's likely that he did this, according to the branch, because he thought it would be immediately effective. From the point that the train started to move, though, there was no real way McGee could have stopped it any quicker than the bell cord method did. The RIB did consider these possibilities, although they weren't many of them, though. If McGee had given the stop cord instead of gesturing for Georgia to step back, this would only have made three seconds worth of difference to when Nicholson heard the warning and was likely to have not really had much of an impact on the outcomes. It would have meant that the train travelled three metres less than the 33 metres it had, which was the distance that the maths concluded once the timings were all figured out. The other option available to stop the train was to cross to the other side of the cab and to pull the alarm cord. This would have sounded an alarm in the driver's cab, warning that an automatic brake application would take place within three to four seconds. Within this time, the driver can brake immediately, can override the automatic brake application, although the additional time needed to travel to the chain on the other side of the cab would have meant that the stop message would have come later, and therefore the actions of Nicholson bringing the train to a stand later still. In fact, there is only one option which the report considers um, that would have made any real difference, and for me it was the only viable option available. If the guard had seen the young person, but delayed taking action in the expectation that she would move away, there were other alternative courses of action available to him to dispatching the train. For example, he could have walked along the platform and made sure that Georgia had moved to a position of safety, or stepped back on board before he gave the uh, ready-to-start code. Alternatively, he could have called for assistance and had the young person removed from the platform. They would have added time onto his journey, and delays are an issue, but lives are so much more significant. For me, that option that the RIB suggested in their report should have been the only option. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. While, in my opinion, the RAIB doesn't particularly draw its best ever conclusions on this case, my own personal opinion, of course, I don't like vagueness in these reports. The scientific definitiveness of them is pretty much one of the factors I like most when reading them. And if I'm going to pull together a podcast and definitively explain to you, fine people, what happened in an incident, I'd like my source to be fairly definitive. It's, uh, it's one of the reasons I can make these episodes. In any case, the branch does consider some additional factors as part of the report, so we'll briefly look into those as well. Once Georgia had fallen with the train moving, it brings into play another causal factor that was considered by the branch, and that was that the platform edge gap was wide enough for this fall to result in Georgia reaching the track itself. The gap that we're referring to here, somewhat self-explanatorily, is the space between the edge of the platform coping stones up to the edge of the vehicle itself. Here, with this platform and this rolling stock, this gap was 300 millimetres, 30 centimetres, diagonally from body side to concrete. It's not a gaping chasm, but it's more than sufficient for a body to fall through, not least that of a lightly built individually. The UK Rail Network is not created to a set standard blueprint everywhere we know that and so therefore there isn't a set gap between all trains and platforms it just would not work everywhere on the general network the relationship between rail height and platform height is one that varies significantly it might be down to the dates that certain platforms were constructed the the gradual rise of a track bed as new ballast is laid the fact that buildings and structures settle over time, or that standards that are in play when they were constructed have changed to what they are today. These are all just some of the things that we need to deal with when we consider that the network generally has been built over the course of centuries in a considerably piecemeal manner. Of course, not every train is built equally either, despite the uh, vocal cries of many for standardization and ask for a move to level boarding this isn't yet something that has materialized at least not on our island others on the european mainland are doing a little bit better in places um, but i think that generally on the mainline network there's still a little ways to go there as well add into all of this that the gauge clearance required at a station will change as a result of a number of factors and it further complicates matters the, the gap required between the platform edge and the, the track itself will vary uh, if there's a requirement for freight trains to pass through in a wider loading gauge, if there are trains that pass through at high speed, because those trains will 
roll and sway on their suspensions, and that's something that we call dynamic gauging. If there's curved track, this impacts things as well, because vehicle centres and the ends will overhang the track by different amounts and require more gauge. And if the line is canted on a sharp corner, that changes the distance needed as well. So because of all of these things, like I said, there is not a standard distance which is expected for the gap. Instead, there is an acceptable range of stepping distances which trains must fit within. At the time of the incident at James Street, there were maximum allowable distances for a number of measurements. The, uh, the maximum vertical step to a footstep at a passenger door, the maximum horizontal step out to a footstep, and also the maximum diagonal distance from platform edge to step. There was also a standard range for the distance from platform edge to nearest rail and for platform height above rail level. All platforms should fit into those ranges that were defined here. And the platform at James Street complied in all areas, except for the vertical step height, which was one centimetre too high at 260 millimetres. However, it's a marginal non-compliance, which had no real impact in this situation. There is no specific standard governing the gap between the body side and the platform away from the doors. And it's invariably larger on pretty much every train on the main line when compared to the step gap itself. The focus is on getting that step from platform to door as low as possible. One thing that is worth bearing in mind here, however, is that on a closed network with straight platforms that aren't designed for high speed running, an operator can massively reduce all of these gaps and actually get a lot closer to delivering level boarding far easier than anywhere else on the mainline network. A fleet which wouldn't be used anywhere else could be built much closer to the tolerances of platforms that operators controlled completely. An operator such as Merseyrail would be able to do that. And in fact, in the last year, Merseyrail has been introducing new Stadler-built Class 777 units onto the network. The height of the floors in these units has been spec to meet the relatively standard platform height on their network that you can now find on their network. And for accessibility purposes, all doorways have got sliding steps that move into position when the train is stopped at a platform. It means that wheelchair passengers can board and disembark without relying on a separately deployed ramp. Sounds brilliant, incredible, new, newfangled, high-tech. But within the 2011 report, so... 12, 13 years ago now, the REIB highlighted that methods were already available which could have produced similar results. In the section of the report helpfully titled Make it less likely that a person will fall through the platform edge gap, the REIB refers to solutions such as platform edge doors but acknowledges their cost, saying that they're most often going to be installed on new build stations like we've seen on the Elizabeth line down there in that London the branch also looks at less expensive options, such as um, adapting the vehicles themselves, referring to the London Underground, who had trains as early as the 1930s that were fitted with a horizontal board that ran along the vehicle's length. It acts as a footstep at doorways and elsewhere as a device to block the gap. While Merseyrail had used standard rail vehicles since the 1930s, 
So that's sort of the designs that can operate elsewhere, like they had at the Times, like the 508. Prior to that, the stock that they used was a design with a wider profile and a much smaller gap between the train and the platform was the result. Um, in the report itself was a picture of some 1906 stock as a, as a perfect example of this. Although as a concept, it's not something that only existed back then. For many, many years now, the Tyne and Weir Metro in Newcastle, Gateshead, that sort of area, has operated trains that leave little to no platform gap taking full advantage of its closed network, no requirement to run those trains anywhere else. And even if you didn't want to completely build a new train to meet that requirement, the report does tell us that it might be possible to fit panels to the body side of the trains that fill those gaps, and that if you were to ever ship those units off somewhere else, those panels could be removed, so they could still operate on the mainline network. There are some other engineering solutions that would reduce that gap. So raising the platforms on Merge Rail's network would be a, uh, a solution, albeit a pretty expensive one. But there are other cheaper solutions that were suggested. So sort of slightly bringing the cost down now would be to move the coping stones closer to the trains. Less expensive than raising the whole platform, but still costly. There is a cheaper option, which is available and was suggested in the report, and these are gap fillers. They are bolted to the platform edge. They're made from blocks with deep rubber prongs. The prongs are able to support a person's weight vertically as they stand down on it, but they bend and deflect horizontally without damaging themselves or the trains um, that pass and contact them. You can use these blocks to build out the platform a little bit and reduce the gap. The fact is, the open railway, the, the main line, the, the bit that goes from place to place, is segregated from the people all around it. Fences and walls, embankments and cuttings, they all provide a physical barrier. And people who find themselves meeting trains here, well, they've quite often made a conscious decision to put themselves in a position of risk. In fact, the safest of situations is by completely segregating people from the heavy metal of the railway. So we do that everywhere that we possibly can. But, really big caveat, but there is one place this just really isn't possible. And that is where people need to board or alight. Platform edge doors are a good step in the right direction and sort of the ideal look for a station. But... It just would not be cost effective for every single rural platform. And uh, retrofitting is more or less an impossibility when different trains with doors in different locations are calling it 100-year-old platforms. It's a situation the railway is a very long way from solving. So, what is the solution? It's effective management of where people board trains. The place that we like to call the PTI or the platform train interface. This is the point where people are at their most vulnerable while undertaking an entirely everyday task. This is the point where the railway needs to protect people. Within the PTI, there is an area we call the dispatch corridor, or at least that's what we refer to it as where I've learned. 1.25 metres or so from the edge of the train to the height of the cant line where the body side meets the roof. When you're dispatching a train, that space should be completely empty. 
empty of items, empty of risks, and most crucially, empty of people. People who are not always making the best decisions for themselves at the time, and are not always in their best minds. We as railway staff understand the risks. We've got a duty of care over those who are in that area. And as we move into the next section of this episode, you'll see that I'm not the only person who feels that way. As I said earlier, at the same time as the RIB was undertaking their inquiries, the BTP was also doing the same. And in 2015, Detective Superintendent Simon Taylor would write about his experience of the investigation, which was known as Operation Scotia. The command and control log was opened on the day in question with the message person fell between platform and the train may be a fatality and that incident was initially categorized as a fatal accident unfortunately a relatively standard thing that happens on the railway the police arrived and attended and as i mentioned before that situation was quickly noted to be futile in terms of rescue but the investigation needed to commence immediately. In his early accounts with the police, McGee spoke of how the female was intoxicated and banging on the side of the train, trying to get back on. But when BTP started to review the CCTV image, they noticed the first inconsistencies. Georgia hadn't been banging on the windows as we knew. She'd been leaning on them. The initial account was not completely accurate, and the incident was reclassified as unexplained. When it became clear that McGee had been watching Georgia from the window of the train as it started to move, they called again into question the initial account, and they made the conclusion that he had failed to follow safety procedures. What was initially classed as an accident, and then as unexplained, was now reclassified again as suspicious and a senior investigator was assigned to the case. The RAIB doesn't apportion blame. We know that, we've talked about that in the past and we've talked about why in the past. Its role is more aligned to understanding and defining technical reasons that accidents took place. Pragmatic, factual, but not apportioning blame per se. An RAIB report could say that The dispatch of a train by a certain person in a certain way contributed to the accident, but the RAIB will not say, that bloke there, that lady, is the person to blame. It's not what they exist for. And in that mindset, the RAIB has no ability to prosecute anybody for the details that are uncovered in their work. The police, however, is looking for where it can be found, a person who has committed an offence. 
and then for sufficient evidence to see if they can be held legally accountable for it. Much of the detail that I described earlier about George's night in advance of the accident came to light as the work of the police, as they undertook the comprehensive detective work this case required. The police investigation focused in on the safety-critical training that McGee and other Merseyrail staff had received, specifically around the final stages of station duties, which Taylor writes up as this. Once everyone has boarded, disembarked from the train, the train doors are clear, the signal is showing clear and it is safe, they should press the door close button on the control panel. When the button has been pressed, an audible beeping noise sounds throughout the train to warn passengers the door's about to close. All of the passenger doors will then shut. The lights on the outside of the train then go out and the guard must then check again by looking down the side of the train to ensure that the doors are closed and that one, the signal at the end of the platform is still showing clear and two, that it is safe for the train to depart. Once the guard has satisfied himself that this is the case, he will then board the train and close that door. He should then indicate to the driver with a two-beep signal that it is safe for departure, and the driver then acknowledges by sending the signal back. The train then departs on his journey, and the guard should also remain at the door looking out onto the platform until it's into the tunnel. This description, this process, is what, well, it is the what good looks like that the police were considering when assessing the sequence of events at James Street. This is the training that McGee received, and this is what they were measuring him against when reviewing the station CCTV. And in the journal, Taylor recounts the sequence of events as interpreted by BTP, with what feels like a smaller element of ambiguity than that which is described by the branch in their own report. The sequence of events that Taylor shared was this. 23, 28 and 2 seconds. The train arrives at the station. McGee is seen with the guard's cab door open leaning out, looking along the platform. The doors were open, as shown by the orange lights and the large group, some of them associated with the deceased, and then alighted from the train, and one male was seen to fool her out at the door on the platform. 23, 28 and 20, McGee finally stepped out of the guard's cab onto the platform. 23, 28 and 30, the male reboards the train and McGee also steps back into the cab with his head remaining out of the guard's cab, looking down the train. 23, 28 and 31, Georgia then left the train and moved across the platform towards the wall. 23, 28 and 40, Georgia headed back towards the train while the doors were still open. 23, 28, 43, Georgia leant back against the train, with both hands placed upon the windows above her head. This put her at approximately a 75 degree angle against the train. By 45 seconds, everyone on the platform had now gone past McGee, who was still leaning out of his cab. The passengers were still heading towards the exit, but McGee had a clear, and unobstructed view of Georgia, and all along the side of the train, right down the platform. 23, 28 and 46. The train doors shut, and the orange lights above them were extinguished, whilst Georgia was still leaning on the train. And at 23, 28, 52, 
the platform was now completely empty, except for Georgia, who was still leaning against the train, talking to a friend inside. Three seconds later, McGee, who had been leaning out of the guard's cab the entire time, then waved Georgia away from the train and simultaneously gave the signal to start. This is not what his training and his responsibilities as a guard required him to do. In fact, they specifically prevented him from moving the train until it was safe. 23, 28 and 57 seconds, Georgia, who was still against the train with both hands on the window, was seen to twist in the direction of the train's movement, then came away from it, then fell towards and back in contact with the train again. McGee was still leaning out of the guard's cab, watching all of this. 23, 28 and 59, Georgia again went in the direction of the train and fell headfirst between the gap at the edge of the platform and the wheels. McGee was still leaning out of the cab, watching this. 23, 29 and 8 seconds, McGee caused the train to come to an emergency stop and used a platform emergency telephone to summon the emergency services. Due to the fact that the first responders didn't have the opportunity to view this CCTV footage, and because McGee's initial accounts didn't tell them exactly what happened, that was the reason it was initially treated as a fatal accident. But as I said, once investigations began, this changed before too long. In fact, once the police had seen the sequence of events from the CCTV, Detective Superintendent Taylor formed a somewhat grim opinion of the situation. This was that what had really happened at James Street was that McGee saw an opportunity to leave Georgia stranded on the platform as a sort of punishment for her antics earlier on in the journey. Unfortunately, the consequences of his actions were far-reaching and, in the opinion of Taylor, they undoubtedly caused Georgia's death. When McGee realised what he had done, he provided an account to the police that minimised his responsibility. And this is the opinion that Taylor had came to. McGee goes on to, well, McGee goes, Taylor goes on to write that given McGee did wave the victim away from the side of the train, then it appeared highly unlikely that he specifically intended that George should die. However, it's also apparent from the known facts that he was conscious. He had to be conscious of the possible danger to her safety and having recognised her proximity to the train, failed to do anything to protect her. Indeed, he did the exact opposite while taking the train forward while she was leaning against him, leaning against it within his unobstructed view. And as a member of staff, as a member of staff, he had a clear duty of care to her. This was all in breach, clearly, of his training and responsibilities as a guard. Further to that point, the breach resulted directly in George's death. However unintentional, it might have been on his part. To this point, BTP came to the opinion that an offence had likely been committed by McGee, and the three offences that they were considering for this were either involuntary manslaughter by gross negligence, involuntary manslaughter by an unlawful act, or endangering the safety of any person on the railway, both. They're all very serious offences, but they're all 
probably valid considerations for this situation. The police weren't specific railway experts. Even the British Transport Police aren't specifically operational railway experts. So as part of the investigation, they commissioned actual experts to advise on technical aspects. So the ORR advised on railway operating procedures and health and safety, and they used a scientist to um, to assess the physics and mechanics of how George's body would have interacted with the side of the train as it started to move. It was this evidence that proved that the movement of the train once McGee gave permission to proceed was the factor that initiated the fall itself. It was the train moving that triggered the fall down into the platform gap. The outcome of the criminal investigation undertaken by the police was that on the 3rd of November, just shy of two weeks after the incident, McGee was arrested on suspicion of the manslaughter of George Avali. He was interviewed over two days, during which time he supplied a number of prepared statements, which in places contradicted themselves and the report he'd submitted to Mersey Rail immediately after the event. There was a largely no comment interview, which supplemented those statements, and I imagine was probably of limited use in making the case in favour of his actions. At the conclusion of the arrest and interviewing phase, McGee was bailed until the 11th of January 2012, with conditions not to enter the Merseyrail network, stations, depots without first speaking to the police, not to engage in any work unpaid or paid on the railway network, not to approach staff members and to reside at home without leaving the country. McGee was finally charged by the police on the conclusion of the investigation for gross negligence manslaughter. While the RAIB doesn't prosecute, the police certainly does. And in November of 2012, Christopher McGee found himself in the dock and over the course of a week or so, the courtroom heard from those who'd been present, the evidence gathered and about the things that had been witnessed. The end result of this, which is something we don't seem to see very often, is that Christopher McGee was jailed. Sentenced to serve five years for the manslaughter of Georgia. It's somewhat of a rarity and um, testament to conviction of BTP in the faults that were shown here. Um, a conviction that was clearly echoed by the Crown Prosecution Service and indeed in the courtroom. In a statement that BTP issued following the accident, Detective Chief Inspector Simon Taylor said that the verdict brings to a close a year-long investigation which has been extremely difficult for all involved. And I would like to take this opportunity to thank the officers and staff who have worked tirelessly to bring this case to court. McGee did, as was his right, appeal the sentence. Appearing before the Court of Appeals in 2013 in a hearing which lasted only 90 minutes. McGee's barrister he argued that the five-year term was out of step with previous sentencing decisions in this type of case and it didn't reflect the personal mitigation. That he'd been a train guard for 20 years, had an unblemished record, and actually that he himself had suffered from the incident due to post-traumatic stress disorder and it was the first prison sentence for what was in essence a man of good character. In response, however, Lord Justice Pitchford said that the appeal was not even arguable. What distinguishes this case is the appealant's inexplicable decision, knowing the gross risk of death or serious injury to this drunk young woman, to signal to the driver that it was safe to proceed. It seems to us, 
that this was gross negligence of a very high order in the performance of his responsibility, both to the public and to this individual over which the appealant had complete personal control. Standing back, we do not underestimate the severity of the sentence imposed, but we are quite satisfied that the trial judge, who was in the best position to make the assessment of seriousness, took account of all relevant factors. He reflected them in his sentence within the appropriate range, and for that reason we are unable to conclude that the sentence he imposed was arguably manifestly excessive, and for that reason we must reject the application. Duty of care. It is a phrase we hear a lot. But I do wonder sometimes if we really always consider the implications of it. Look at the case of me as a parent. It means that I need to feed and clothe and house my daughter. She is, well, she is a pain in the side at times. But on the vast majority, she's the apple of my eye, the permanent resident on my thoughts and I do have a duty of care to her, but it's never one that requires much thought or persuasion. It's genetically programmed into all of us to protect our offspring. But I do also have other duties of care in my life. As a manager at work, I have a duty of care to the team that I work with. I need to make sure that they have the equipment, the information, the support that they need to do their job safely and go home every day. I also have one to those who are coming into the space our business manages If I see conditions aren't safe, I need to step in and rectify that to prevent harm and to protect people who are within our environment. But perhaps one of the greatest duties of care that I have in my professional life is to those who are not of the railway, but those who are simply on the railway. Passengers, visitors, or those people who just like loitering in the places that we work. A few years ago now, I learnt to dispatch trains. I went through the process of learning, understanding PTI risks, the technical process of how to actually undertake the tasks in line with the rulebook, the the rulebook responsibilities of the role of a dispatcher. I learned all about the dispatch corridor, when to give my tips to the conductor and when not to. Underpinning this entire training course was a document that had been included at the end of the booklet that we were working through. Really good booklet of rulebook extracts, station maps, equipment lists, techniques. But stuck at the end of the handout was a document from the Judiciary of England and Wales. In full, included for all of us to read and digest, were the sentencing remarks of Mr Justice Holroyd from the 15th of November 2012. The case, the Queen versus Christopher James McGee. Nothing hits as hard when you're learning a task as seeing in clean, plain black and white, 
what can happen if you do not conduct it properly? What can go wrong if you don't take your duty of care seriously? As a dispatcher, I would be giving a guard a signal that the train was safe to depart. It was my responsibility to make sure that it was. In 2011, it was McGee's. Justice Holroyd does recognise in his sentencing remarks the fleeting nature of the events that took place on the platform at James Street and how they ended a long and safe career as well as George's life. He says, Your gross negligence occurred over a period which can be measured in seconds. It was not a prolonged course of risk-taking. You were not motivated by financial profit or self-advantage. As to your personal mitigation, you have never previously been convicted of any crime and your one formal police caution was for a completely different type of offence and can be ignored for these purposes. Your negligence on this occasion must be viewed against your background of more than 20 years of conscientious service on the railways. You will live with the knowledge of what you did and I accept that it will be a heavy burden to you you will live with the knowledge. Words which I read at the time and which sunk in. Holroyd's sentencing notes are comprehensive and publicly available, so I won't labour the point, but I will end this episode by sharing the powerful opening paragraphs of what Justice Holroyd had to say. You have been convicted by the jury of the manslaughter of George Varley. Her life was ended in a dreadful way at the age of just 16 by your gross negligence. You did not intend to kill or even injure her, but you displayed an appalling disregard for her safety, and she paid for your criminal negligence with her life. When a crime of homicide is committed, one life is ended but many more lives are damaged or destroyed. In an eloquently written statement, George Ovalli's mother has made very clear the excruciatingly painful sadness with which she suffers. Of course, she is not alone in grieving. George's father, her wider family and her friends have all suffered and will continue to suffer. No sentence of the court can bring back their loved one or make up for their loss. Thank you once more for joining me for another episode of Signals to Danger. Please come and hang out with me on social media. It's at Signals to Danger pretty much anywhere. Don't forget there's merchandise on sale. The link is on the social posts. And thank you to all of our supporters. With all of this said, thank you for joining me once more. And until the next episode, travel safe.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 